welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to venture into a subject that I've been longing to do for quite a long time. And that is to research and talk about the history of the Jackson Prison. That's right, the Michigan State Prison over in Jackson, Michigan. Now, there's an incredible book that was written on this by a lady by the name of Judy Gale Krasnow, and it's called Jacktown, and it covers the history and hard times of Michigan's first state prison. So we're going to venture into some of the stories from this book today, so come along and join me. So, Miss Krasnow really did a wonderful job with this book. There is a lot of an incredible history that she was able to research, and she referred to a lot of the early logs from the Michigan State Prison in putting the story together. And it is um, something that I'm still working my way through in reading, but I wanted to share with you some of the information about the early establishment period of the Michigan State Prison in history because it's quite interesting. And there's also a lot of cruelty that went on during this time period as well. And it was during the 1800s that the prison was established. But to really get an understanding, we have to begin with the colonial times when settlers began to come to America and they brought to America the English concept of jails to house paupers, vagrants, drunks, prostitutes, thieves, and murderers. Punishments reminiscent of medieval times were designed to publicly humiliate a person having committed a crime. The wooden stocks placed in the public square held prisoners standing or seated on hard wooden benches with their hands and their head and sometimes feet locked tightly in wooden holes. For many hours, sometimes days, They'd remain in this uncomfortable position in the hot sun, cold winds, rain, sleet, or hail. Passerbys would toss rotten food, such as eggs, tomato, and other items, while heckling them, bringing shame to those taunted as well as their families. Other carryovers from medieval times consisted of the cuckold chair, in which a wife who had betrayed her husband or talked too much and belittled him by being disobedient, would be seated, strapped in, and paraded through town, sometimes dunked underwater in the local creek or river for long periods, just short of drowning. A husband who had betrayed his wife was strapped to a ladder or chair and marched through town as outraged citizens blew horns, banged on pots and pans, and threw objects at the unfaithful man while calling him names." The Salem Witch Trials, another good example, took place in Massachusetts in 1692. A couple of hundred young girls and women accused of being witches were imprisoned, tied, and hanged. One even was pressed to death. Several died of cold and hunger in the miserable jails in which they were confined. The premise of punishment was based on the biblical story of Adam and Eve, temptation, sin, punishment, for breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Ridding towns of witches was another means of keeping the devil away. In colonial America, small jails were the place to be locked up for committing a crime. Hanging was often the result of an arrest. Vengeance, as opposed to reason, more often served as the judge 
of what punishments were meted out to a violator. When the 1800s rolled around and agricultural gave way to industry with the advent of the Industrial Revolution and burgeoning of factories to utilize the many machines invented, punishments and incarceration took on a whole new meaning. America began to utilize jails as the holding place for criminals awaiting trial. Once convicted, the convict's place of incarceration became huge prisons called penitentiaries. These huge penitentiaries began to be known as the big house. The concept behind state or federally run large houses of incarceration resulted from populations rapidly increasing throughout states as more settlers arrived and from the idea that criminals should not only be punished, but should also be rehabilitated. Public humiliation and vengeance were no longer the answer. Instead, locked away from society, the prisoner who wished to be part of society again would repent, improve, and go out as a functioning citizen. In 1816, a prison was built in Auburn, New York. This prison, though still called a prison, set the penitentiary movement in motion and became the prime example of what would become the American-style big house. Here, the inmates would be simultaneously punished and rehabilitated by providing cheap and forced labor for factories built on the prison grounds inside the prison walls. Forced labor of any sort was the convict's lot, and a prisoner had no choice as to the factory or type of work he'd be assigned to. He would learn skills that would serve him when and if he attained release. Auburn served as a maximum security prison, soon to be called a penitentiary. A wooden statue of a Revolutionary War soldier carved in 1821 stood atop the administration building. By 1848, a copper edifice made in the foundry by the inmates had replaced the statue, now weathered almost beyond recognition. The new statue, called Copper John, initiated the saying about those committed to Auburn that they were going to work for Copper John. In contrast, in 1829, in Philadelphia, Eastern State Penitentiary opened and ushered in the use of the word penitentiary for the large houses of incarceration. The innovative term evolved from the words penance and penitence. Jail had now officially become a place where one would be held while awaiting trial for short periods of time for unruly behavior such as drunkenness. Eastern State Penitentiary was based on the Quaker idea that one should do penance. The inmates of Eastern State were kept in solitary cells with no contact whatsoever with other inmates. Each cell had a solid door facing the main walkway of each cell block row as well as a lattice door on the opposite side that led out to a small enclosed individual yard. For one hour each day, inmates went out into their solitary confined yards to look at the sky and hear the chirping of birds while further contemplating their wrongdoing and the pathway to bettering their lives. Other than the short time outside with nature, all the time was spent in solitude. Meals were eaten alone. Walls painted white would inspire purity. Labor, such as sewing garments and making shoes, were also a solo activity. Penance, silence, constant time to be alone with one's thoughts would, the Quakers believed, bring a man to his senses and steer him to a rehabilitated life. 
More often, though, what this isolation did was brought about insanity. Furthermore, isolated imprisonment did not fit the era of growing industrialization. The Auburn prison system, however, did fit this new era. With the mushrooming of factories throughout the North, the Auburn prison established a system that fit perfectly with the growth of industrialization. The prison walls surrounded what became a mini-city of factories. Punishment included the long and tiresome hours an inmate had to work. Such hours were characteristic of non-prison factory labor, too, during the Industrial Revolution. Factory conditions were anything but pleasant. The noise was often deafening, and the air was filled with unhealthy fumes, flying debris, and lint that caused brown lung disease. Obviously, the prisoners could not organize unions or fight for better working conditions like non-convict laborers could do. The rehabilitation aspect of the Auburn system allowed prisoners often with little or no education to learn skills and earn some money to be put into account accessible when the prisoner returned to society upon release. And so she goes into a lot more details about this early system, but I think you get the kind of the idea that the Auburn system became the model for what would become the penitentiary in other states as the country evolved. And when Michigan became a state, it was first a territory and then a state, and after statehood, they began to establish the principal locations for some of the items that were needed for a state. One of them was a state capital, and you probably heard stories about how Lansing was ultimately chosen as the state capital. But Part of a state also had a prison system that also had insane asylums as well as universities. And these were the four big items that cities around a new state were looking to land one of those four items. They either wanted to be the state capital or they wanted to be the state university. Number three on the list was the state prison and number four was the insane asylum. So Jackson ultimately, as we know, became the Michigan State Prison location. But there's a bit of a story behind that, as there was originally a battle to become the first state prison. Michigan became a state in 1837, and it may seem peculiar that newly established cities and towns would compete to have a prison. However, during the Industrial Revolution, a city or township that gained a state prison was certain to successfully move into the new industrial era. There was vast potential for those wishing to build factories as part of a penitentiary, and the setting, with its cheap forced labor, was ideal. Undoubtedly, a huge prison would bring great stature and wealth to a town. Prison factories could bring railroads to transport products all over the nation. Railroads could bring visitors, and visitors would require hotels to sleep in and restaurants to eat in. And economic success could not help but come to a town that was the home of a big house. So proposals to be the city that was the one selected for the new state prison in Michigan were submitted by Jackson, but also Ann Arbor, Adrian, Detroit, Marshall, Napoleon, and Lansing. Each town stated why its location was the prime one for the prison. However, certain stipulations were necessary in order for the prison to be built. One required at least 20 to 30 acres of land and land had to be near the center of town. Why would a prison need to be near the center of town? An aspect of the Auburn, New York system not only had the inmates working in factories within the prison walls, but some were marched to factories within the town as well. 
So that was part of the stipulation is that the prison had to be in proximity to the downtown area of the city. And you might think today, well, that would be outrageous to put a prison right in the middle of a metropolitan area. But this is the 1800s, you know, and this is what they thought about in terms of labor. So Jackson was graced with five pioneering business-oriented men who owned many acres of land near the center of town. And it was along the Grand River, much of it marsh and swampland that needed draining, and the water, however, would ensure good farming. The prison could not only produce industrial goods, but it could also accommodate farming, and inmates could be contracted out, producing food for the prison and crops that could be distributed throughout Jackson, as well as surrounding towns and maybe even other states. The land itself, however, was posing some problems because it was partially swampland, and it would require some grading and the construction of a necessary dam as well as a mill, uh, and it also had a mosquito-filled swamp adjacent to it, as well as the presence of mighty oaks and tamarack trees. The land did hold a little bit of threat of disease. And at first, Marshall was favored by the three appointed commissioners that were chosen to select the site, and Napoleon ran a close second, as it had a small quarry of sandstone, which was a major building material at the time. But in keeping with the political maneuverings in the newly formed state, businessmen and other civic leaders began backroom operations with local and state politicians and called on Jackson citizens to pressure politicians. Among the arguments Jackson offered in its favor was that it was closer to the criminals because it was closer to Detroit, a big city that would certainly breed crime. Jackson also had access to more sandstone via a huge quarry in Spring Harbor, and they claimed that they had more access to sandstone than other prison competitors did. And sandstone would be a vital necessity for building a stone, brick, and mortar prison. And the candidate towns also competed with the number of acres that they were submitting with their proposal, and Jackson came through with 60 acres when it was all said and done. So this land became contributed by businessmen who were anxious to have the prison and would be donating the land to the state. And so this land didn't have to be purchased by the state as part of the proposal. And better yet, all 60 acres were smack dab in the middle of town. So Jackson ultimately won the prize and was awarded the prison and they became Michigan's first state prison. Now, the first prison that they ended up building was made of wood. It had uh, a big resemblance to one of the old wooden forts that you might see. And this lasted for a while, but ultimately became a problem after a large prisoner escape happened through the fort. And so then they switched over to using the prisoners as labor to build a stone-walled prison. And work began on that in 1842. Now, the author goes into a lot of details on the history of how the prison was built and all the different wings of the prison, and it is a fascinating read, and you should definitely get a copy of the book. And I will put a link in the show note descriptions where you can get a copy of her book and support her work. But I wanted to go into some of the actual treatment of some of the prisoners now, because there's a lot that was really shocking to me. And one of the points of the life of the prisoners that you don't see today, um, because it was 
essentially something that was in the early 1800s as a form of punishment. You would see a lot of cases where, especially in the case of murder, where you would have the punishment to include prison for life in solitary confinement. And I came across this quite a number of times in doing the research for the book that I have coming out on true crime from the Victorian era in Southwest Michigan. And several of the people that had committed the crimes and were convicted, especially the men, were given a sentence that included solitary confinement for life in the Jackson State Prison. And that was shocking to me. And I didn't quite understand it, but reading her book really helped explain it. And at one point, there were well over 20 prisoners that were in solitary confinement in the prison. And the conditions were such that they didn't have any daylight in those prison cells for 24 hours a day, They unless the door opened where they would hand them food. And these men that were in these solitary confinements, as you can imagine, deteriorated not only physically, but mentally as well. They became insane after a time. And there was a point in the history of the state where they had an inspection that was ordered by the state of Michigan. And the inspectors came through and inspected the prison. And they also inspected the solitary confinement. And they were shocked and appalled when the cells were opened with these men that had been in solitary confinement. They were Many of them were gaunt, uh, covered with roaches, sores all over them from the the roaches. They um, were blind or very sensitive to light. And many of them, when when they, of course, were opened, became very ill when the light came in. And they were taken to the infirmary. And I think she says in her book that five or six of them passed away just en route to the infirmary. And so the the practice of solitary confinement for life was soon legislated out of existence in the state of Michigan following that incident and following that inspection. And she details that extensively in the book. And I can tell you that there were cases of Uh, sentencing to solitary confinement that I found starting as early as the 1850s. And you see cases of it going all the way through the 1860s. So the practice that I'm certain of for that kind of sentencing for murder cases occurred in the state of Michigan for at least a decade, maybe 20 years. It may have been two, two decades before the practice was finally abolished by an act of legislation. And she describes that the men that were In the solitary confinement, the bread and water diet was not a myth. For those prisoners confined to solitary in the 1800s, it was a fact. And there were many suicides in spite of the clothing designed to prevent them. Uh, Banging one's head against the brick or concrete walls often sufficed. Screams could be heard echoing through the cell block. And if one was not insane going in, chances of being so upon leaving were also very high. So let me just read you the section that she talks about, the inspection that happened. And this inspection happened in 1861. And the state inspectors arrived to do their quarterly round of checks. And by that year, the entire west complex of the growing prison was complete. And the agenda for the officials consisted of inspecting each cell, including all of the solitary cells. And when the cells of the inmates with life in solitary confinement were opened, the inspectors were utterly horrified. All 20 inmates were blind, as their eyes had not seen light for 15 years. Their hair had grown long and was matted and infested with lice. 
They were covered with cockroaches. Their skin, dry and shriveled, oozed with sores of malnutrition and neglect. Any fingernails and toenails not bitten or chewed to the bone had grown into winding claws. All of the convicts suffered from virtually every form of malnutrition. Nine could no longer speak but only grunt, and they necessitated commitment to the state mental asylum. Six dreadfully ill died when exposed to sunlight while being carried to the infirmary. The remaining five were hopelessly crippled and blind and would spend the rest of their lives as indigents, either in or out of prison. The inspectors appealed to the state legislatures to reinstate capital punishment, as capital punishment in the state of Michigan had been abolished in 1846, and they figured it was more humane to hang a man than to have a man to live with 20 to 15 years in solitary confinement. As there was no crime, no matter how heinous, that warranted such punishment as this, they they claimed. So the legislature did not repeal the law against capital punishment, and instead the law was changed to read that a man could be condemned to life in prison, but no longer life in solitary confinement. The term lifer originated at the Michigan State Prison, and this is where that term actually began in the country. So some of the other punishments that they had for prisoners was the code of silence. Prisoners were not allowed to speak, you know, while they were in prison. And if they did speak, they would get beaten. Uh, they, if they were allowed to speak, they had to only speak to the guards. And it was a very strict form of punishment that was very uh, heavily enforced. And if they spoke to another inmate, they would get beaten, um, thrown in solitary confinement. Sometimes they would get hung up um, and they would be tortured. And there was a lot of different tortures that were created by the various prison wardens that ran the prison over the years. And some of them are, were quite heinous. You know, one of them was uh, where the term, have you ever heard the term, I've got you over a barrel? Well, that was a derived from a prison punishment. An inmate would be stripped down to his undershorts or given a pair to wear as underwear was often not allowed. And a huge wooden barrel stood next to a post and the prisoner bent over the barrel with his arms lifted and his wrists crossed and his hands were tied to the post. With the warden or deputy standing by and an assigned guard would take a paddle called the bat and whip the prisoner. The paddle often had a strip of leather on its top so that the convict would be paddled and whipped simultaneously. The punishment was not permitted to take place without the presence of a physician to ensure that that death did not occur. So you'd have the punisher, you'd have the prison guard standing by giving the order to do it, and then you had a physician standing there with this prisoner stretched over a wooden barrel while they're getting whipped and beaten with this this uh, big paddle, which was uh, just one of the many pr uh, tortures they had. Another torture they had was to chalk a prisoner's cell, which means they would put a chalk mark above the prisoner's cell, and that prisoner was to remain in his cell a full 24 hours, sometimes for several days, and often chalking meant no food, and if it was shower day, it could mean that they were not being showered. It could also mean that they would not have their honey bucket emptied. See, the prisoners didn't have indoor plumbing at this point in history. They'd have a bucket that would be emptied once a day. So if they were locked in there for several days, this bucket, which was called a honey bucket, uh, as you could imagine what went in there, their human waste, 
that would be overflowing, and they had to live in the cell with this thing. Uh, so that was a form of torture in itself. Another form of punishment, if they spoke out of turn or spoke without being given permission to speak, they would have their hands were chained together, and their chain would be hooked to a ring or a hook. They'd be hoisted off their feet, and they'd be left to hang there by their wrists. And the author notes that they would be hung up for between 5 to 72 hours um, on one of those hooks. Another form of punishment was the iron cap. And this was a iron metal cage that resembled a bird cage. And it, was, uh, it weighed a fair amount. And it was put around their head and secured with a padlock. And it was uh, something that weighed heavily on their shoulders. And so when they had an iron neckband that was locked, it felt like an iron turtleneck garment. And the iron cap was worn for a minimum of 14 days. So the prisoner, being punished in this fashion, had to eat, sleep, and work with this heavy metal piece of iron around their head. And this punishment applied for infractions of being discovered with a shiv, an improvised weapon, like a stake or spike that they had created, or having spoken threatening to an authority or brawling with another inmate. Uh, these were considered the uh, offenses to receive this type of punishment, and the punishment itself was considered to be very humiliating. Other forms of punishment included whippings. They were being whipped by an ox whip when they were strapped to a pole. There was another story of an agent that was in charge of the prison, and his name was John Morris. And during his time there, he had a sadistic reign of terror on the prisoners. One of the punishments that he came up with was called riding the mare. And what this was, it looked like a sawhorse with a point on the top. And the prisoner would be strapped onto this pointed top with weights on their feet. And they'd be have their hands tied behind their back. And they'd be left on this sawhorse, um, which had a two-inch piece of sharp splintered wood forming the top of the saddle and the wooden horse stood about eight feet high and the prisoner was hoisted and his handcuffs behind him and the weights on his ankles and he had to sit on the sharp two inch blade and he had to sit through it in snow sleet or hail or rain or broiling sun in this riding a mare position for 24 sometimes 48 hours or longer and that was the sadistic form of punishment that john morris had created other forms of punishment included strapping a prisoner to a fence, shooting them with a fire hose until they could barely stand up anymore and it had bruises and markings all over their body. And a lot of these types of things you see in some movies like uh, Shawshank Redemption, some other movies that, you've, that have been related to prisons over the years. But it was much worse and there's a lot more detailed graphic descriptions within the book. But it kind of gives you an insight into what prisons were like in the 1800s and what Jackson State Prison was like, or the, the state prison in Jackson was like during that time. So it's a fascinating history, if not gruesome and disturbing. And uh, like I said before, I recommend that you get a copy of the book and read it. It is very informative and quite interesting as a historical perspective on man's inhumanity to man. And that's what I've gotten out of it, and I... I'm only halfway through the book at this point, but it is a fascinating story on Michigan history. And at some point, I want to reach out to Judy Gale Krasnow and see if she'd like to come on as a guest and talk to you guys about some of the history that she found in Jackson Prison. I'll have to uh, get her in touch with her publisher and get her contact information and see if she'll come on the show. 
But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. I hope you enjoyed learning some of the history of Jackson Prison and some of the awful tortures and conditions that some of the prisoners experienced in the 1800s. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. And if you're listening on this show just by clicking on a link that I shared on Facebook, be sure to become a subscriber to the show. You can do so by just downloading an app. You probably have an app right on your phone that uh, carries podcasts. If you have an Apple iPhone, there is an Apple podcast app that's already preloaded on your phone. Just open that app up and look for Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past and just uh, put it in your favorites and you can hear all the updated episodes as they come out. And the same thing with Spotify as an app or Google Podcasts. And there's several other apps out there that you can just download on your phone and save this podcast as one of your favorites to listen to. And that would be greatly appreciated. The more listeners I can get uh, showing on my statistics on my end with Spotify will mean a lot more advertising opportunities for me, which will help offset some of the cost of producing the podcast. And as always, if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I am always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening.